0: Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host Craig Andera. So I want to talk to you today about a couple of conferences. uh, One you're well familiar with; you've heard us talk about it before. It's Closure West. Just want to remind you that will be held in Portland, Oregon, um, April 20th to 22nd, 2015. You can find out more about the conference, including the lineup of speakers, which has now been announced. Uh, more information about the venue, how to get tickets, etc. at closurewest.org. It's a great conference. I've been a couple times. Really fun. Um, if you happen to be on the, on the west coast of the United States, obviously that's, uh, that's very convenient. But, um, you know, we have people come from all over the world and we hope that you will uh, consider doing so as well. Um, On the topic of conferences, I also want to mention some really exciting news. You may have seen this on our blog, but we, Cognitech, have recently announced that we are adding a third conference to our lineup to join Closure West and, of course, the Conj. I'm talking about Euroclosure. Uh, We were approached by Marco, who runs Euroclosure, who has run Euroclosure, and asked if we would like to um, take over running it, and uh, we were very happy to do that, very excited to do that. In fact, Euroclosure's got a great reputation. Marco and the other organizers have done a bang-up job. and uh, we are very proud to add that to the lineup. So, the conference Euroclosure will be in Barcelona, Spain from June 25th to the 26th and you can find out all information about that um, at euroclosure.org. Should be really good, Um, you know, we've got the same awesome people that will be organizing Euroclosure that have been responsible for the Conj and Closure West, so you know, um, lots of confidence that they will continue to keep up the uh, the high level that people have come to expect from Euroclosure, so go to euroclosure.org and uh, check that out uh, get yourself some tickets gotta say <laughs> the idea of going to a conference in uh, Barcelona is uh, pretty appealing I think uh, Spain is awesome I've been really really enjoyed it um, so hopefully you can go and uh, uh, enjoy the conference of course but maybe even uh, get out and and see some of the wonderful sites there so uh, I think that covers it for announcements for today um, I will stop there and uh, we will go on to episode 75 of the Cognicast. We should roll. Let's roll.
1: Cool. Sounds good.
0: All right. So uh, welcome, everybody. Today is Thursday, February 26th in the year 2015, and this is the CogniCast. Today, we are very pleased to have um, on the show um, another fellow podcast host, uh, host of the uh, Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, which may win the prize for my favorite podcast title ever. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, I'm talking about Ben Orenstein. Welcome to the show, Ben.
1: Thanks so much. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, we are super excited to have you. You're a good guy. I ran into you at the Closure Conj, and um, and uh, we talked for a bit, and I, that kind of cemented the idea that we should have you on. But before I uh, go on and we get the chance to talk about any of the many interesting things that you're, that you're currently working on or thinking about or doing, um, I want to ask you the opener question, which, as I mm-hmm. warned you, is about art. We always ask people... To share some experience of art, you know, uh, whatever that means to them, you know, show that they saw, a movie they like, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, So uh, I guess you had a chance to think about it. Did you have something you wanted to share with us today?
1: I do. I'm going to start sort of lighthearted. Um, It's a YouTube video uh, and its title is Shia LaBeouf by Rob Cantor. Okay. S-H-I-A-L-A-B-E-O-U-F. And it's this kind of weird, absurdist music video thing that you kind of have to see to understand.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes and uh, you spell it so people can, can search for it. And I imagine with a spelling like that, it won't be too hard to find. I'm certainly a little curious now myself.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things where like you're not going to get it when you see it, but I don't think there's a thing to get. I think it's just supposed to be weird and crazy and it does a really good job of that.
0: Interesting. So uh, so I, the thing I always like to focus on is kind of the experience of it. So I wonder if you could maybe, I mean, maybe that is the, maybe that is the hook is you just sort of like how it's uh, it sounds like it might be the sort of thing where it's, it, it doesn't make you feel any one thing or you don't know what to feel. Is that the, is that the hook or, uh,
1: yeah, it's like somehow really catchy and really visually interesting. And at the same time you're thinking, why would anyone do this? (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, cool. I think maybe, maybe it's best to, um, not, not analyze it too much, but to let people go and experience it. So that's, that's very, very cool. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so like I said, I rented you a closure conge and I think, I can't remember if we were kicking around the idea before that or not, but, uh, we've had one of your, um, so you work at uh, Thoughtbot.
1: I do. And,
0: uh, we've had one of your colleagues on before Dan croak was good enough to come on and talk to us about a bunch of things, including your playbook. Um, but I thought it would be interesting uh, to talk to you as well. Um, first of all, because, you know, there's lots of interesting people there and you're, you're another one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because, you know, you're another podcast host and, uh, and it was really cool to see you at the, at the closure conge, um, Historically, uh, I think it's fair to say that relevance um, and and you know now cognitive like this continuum of companies that we have um, and Thoughtbot are sort of spiritually similar, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and we have a very both have a very strong investment in um, in Ruby historically and an interest in closure. Um, and it, we're both at kind of at various points on that. Uh, uh, we've taken different paths, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but it was just cool to see you there, and I'm like, well, we should have you on. So, I don't know. I mean, there's like 16 different places we could hmm. start, um, you know, everything from your experience at Closure Cons to the podcast, which I think is really interesting to talk about, to, you know, whatever else you want to talk about. So, maybe I'll just throw it to you and say, what, what should we dig in on? What's, what's on your mind?
1: Well, I'll start by saying that the the biggest thing that surprised me at the closure Conch was that I asked you if I could come to your house and pair with you and you said yes.
0: Yes, no, and by the way, I did not, I've not forgotten about you uh, uh-huh. on that front. I do think about it every once in a while and it's like one of those things where I'm not in front of the computer, but uh, we should totally do that one of these days. I am, I am 100% still down for that. I'm not saying that because you caught me on tape. I would absolutely <laughs> have said that. I, and in nope. fact, I meant to, um, some, you know, we do a pre-show call with our guests a lot of the time, and I was going to mention it to you, but we, we didn't manage to connect up. But you are absolutely welcome to to, to come do that sometime.
1: No, that's awesome, and, and it's I I mean I'm doing the same thing on my end, which is like, oh man, Craig was so nice to offer that and I gotta I gotta follow up with him and do that. So okay, yeah, no, don't don't feel like uh you've dropped the ball. It's it's I think the ball's on my court. If well, I... we
0: have several thousand people to hold our feet to the fire on this one now, so yes. uh, that's
1: good. But um, I'm really I'm really excited about this because I've I've done a little bit of closure on my own, and the, actually I I mean. Just when it comes to learning almost anything, I think there's just nothing quite as good as sitting next to or you know, remotely sitting next to someone that has has more experience than you do and watching how they work.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, you know uh, we've talked on the show in the past about pairing and how we use it, mm-hmm. and our, our use of pairing has changed a lot over the almost five years that I've been with Relevance and now Cognitech. Um, and I would say that we use it less in terms of percentage of the time that we're working in a pairing situation. But... At the same time, um, I absolutely employ it, when, uh, even with clients, um, when I'm trying to transfer knowledge about something. I think right. it's an unparalleled way to do that. And that includes, as you point out, um, you know, learning like, a new language or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing is, it's not, even, it's not even so much about the language. Like, I'm sure I'll learn things about closure from it, but mm-hmm. what I'm actually more interested in is the workflow. Mm. Like, when you need to go look at the documentation, like, what do you use for that? Do you have something really fast? Like, when you want to go look at the source? Like, it's all those little things that um, are kind of like the day-to-day life of someone that is doing this thing professionally that I'm trying to, to steal.
0: Sure. So, now, in my case, uh, we can, I guess we can start now.
1: Yeah, why not? <laughs>
0: um, me. In my case, um, my a lot of my workflow, I would say, is actually centered around Emacs and the way that I use Emacs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's interesting because we're at a point in the, the history of closure where, um, you know, Emacs is rapidly becoming not the only choice. I mean, it hasn't been right. the only choice for quite a while. Which is a
1: great sign, by the way. I totally agree, actually. Um, I, mean, so, the uh, word... I, I, I did some common lists back in the day, and like it was pretty much Emacs or get out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was Emacs or who are you? Um, and right. Wh- why did you Who let you in the door? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's clearly not the case anymore, um, you know. I mean, cursive is kind of the obvious uh, one, but there's you know there's lots of others. I mean, Lawrence been working on counterclockwise for a long time, and there's Nightcode and, and a bunch of other really and Vim of course huge sure. already, yep. um, and a bunch of other really viable alternatives. So so certainly my workflow is uh, is Emacs focused Now, are you an Emacs um, person?
1: Uh, I'm not. I, I use Vim day to day. I have used Emacs in the past. Like I'm I'm somewhat familiar with it. And like I said, I did some Common Lisp in Emacs back in the day. Um, so i 'm not like an anti emacs person people like exp- i 'm actually very pro vim and because of that people expect me to be very anti emacs right. uh, but i 'm not i 'm actually a huge fan of Emacs as well so uh, e- i wouldn't i wouldn 't fault you for using it i 'd love to see it, what it looks like
0: okay well that 's cool and i and I said that my workflow is oriented around Emacs, but on reflecting on it a little bit, I guess really it 's about it 's more about a connected REPL. it 's not so much right. what keystrokes you use, and I think a vim person could could absolutely make use of some of the same techniques that I use. And it's nothing crazy. I'm talking about I have a connected REPL and I tend to work in a scratch buffer rather than directly at the REPL because I have um, the ability to manipulate expressions more easily than if I'm just like typing them in a character totally. at a time. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Um, just stuff like that. So,
1: Yeah. How do you, do? You, are you a TDD person? Uh, not
0: hardcore. And the reason for that I think has to do a lot with... Um, well, so first of all, I definitely don't work... Um, red green refactor like really strict, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason for that is because I have the Repl. Um, I substitute that experience for for writing the for the, the the part where I write the test. You know what I mean? Like I'll write an expression to see. I might explore just by writing expressions in a scratch buffer rather than writing a test per se. Yep. Um, I actually personally think that is often more efficient when you're in exploratory mode. Mm-hmm. But that said, I you know, I certainly use unit tests when I can. My work tends to be focused in the back end, you know, big system stuff, and that's not a value judgment, just like the like at high scale and everything with lots of concurrency. I think it becomes really challenging and in fact can even be a bad idea to write unit tests that try to cover every corner of like concurrency and so Sure. And so you know, I might I might have a test harness something more towards the simulation Test end of the spectrum at some point during the development process, but not necessarily TDD in the sense of driving my development process by by writing the test first.
1: Gotcha. Do you reach for uh, property-based testing very often?
0: You, I. It's funny that it's, it's not as much, and the reason is that I haven't recently been working on stuff that is sort of functional in nature as much. You know what mm. I mean? Like so. There's this sweet spot, I think, for Property testing and and I and I I have used it a bit, but but I think the sweet spot is I'm working on something that's largely functional, right? So it's not like I said, like the systemy type of stuff that I have been doing lately, mm-hmm. and where there actually is value in using a wide variety of inputs. I think there are times when there's not, when it's just like a simple unit test covers the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just haven't run into a lot of work where I've reached for property testing and, and, and said, oh yeah, this is exactly what I need. But that might actually be because I haven't internalized it yet and just haven't gotten to the point where I go, oh, this actually is applicable to property testing. I, I, I can yeah, yeah. see some situations, but I bet I can't see as many of them as there actually are.
1: Yeah. It, it's a, it's something I, that's a, something I'm trying to like make a tool in my toolbox. Like I haven't had to, gotten a chance to use it very much. But I have been writing more Haskell recently. Mm. And with Haskell, there's uh, QuickCheck, I think it's called, in Haskell. Mm-hmm. Yep. I forget the exact name. Um, but it's even easier than using Enclosure because Haskell can look at the type signature of your function and generate inputs for you. Right. And so I've been meaning to try this out because I'm, I'm sort of sold on it. And I've heard your episode with, oh man, what was his name? Reed? Yes, exactly. Reed Draper? hmm Yeah, and uh, was like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds great. I totally, I totally can see the benefit, and so I've been meaning to try it out.
0: Yeah, I wonder if you could uh, uh, – it would be an interesting experiment to see if there's any synergy between something like either core-typed or um, mm-hmm. schema or um, Herbert or one of the other. Someone suggested recently that I should use – there should be some sort of sound effect when I do air quotes – because I would say things like, "Oh, I'm doing air quotes right now," yeah. and uh, someone suggested the uh, the lightsaber sound, which I think is awesome, the, the, uh-huh. like your fingers swinging through there. Anyway, yeah. yeah so uh, uh, I forget where I was going with that, but but uh, that would be an interesting an interesting experiment is to see to see if you could use one of the annotation libraries to um, totally. to get the same effect.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, so I have a question for did you. Do you see I'm flipping on, the flipping the interview on you? No, you no that's I'm great. No, that's
0: good. I love <laughs> questions. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this is cool. So I have a uh, sort of a, a hand wavy question that I'm intentionally keeping vague. Okay. One, I feel like, I'm not sure if this is a trend for sure, but I feel like one of the things I'm noticing is I tend to write Ruby with methods that are really short. Like my average method in Ruby is probably like 1.3 lines or mm-hmm. something like that. They tend to be really small. I've noticed in Clojure, people tend to put more stuff in a single function, it seems like. Like I'm flipping through libraries and source code and things like that. And it feels like the average function in Clojure is longer than the average method in Ruby. Do you agree with that? How big, how how quote unquote big is your, the average function you write? And like big, not even necessarily meaning length, but like conceptual complexity size, I guess.
0: Right. It's definitely bigger than 1.3 lines, mm-hmm. <laughs> for me at least. Um, I do feel like I've gone through personally a bit of an arc here, right? Which is that because Clojure has really such really wonderful mechanisms for composition, mm-hmm. um, There's this. there's this just huge kind of mental slot machine sort of payoff that you get when you figure out how to express something in uh, an elegant expression that I think leads you initially at least down the road of, of trying to do that even at the expense of clarity, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a tough one. I mean, we've said it over and over again on the show that you know, so the hard parts of software are all about people and that includes the people that are reading your code for sure, and so I've found myself evolving towards a place where, yeah, I, I can do the code golf thing and figure out how to how to do the whole algorithm in one expression where I thread the result all the way through, and you know, there's kind of intermediate anonymous functions in the middle and everything, and then I've found myself more recently, I'll look at that and go, you know, it's really clever to use juxt, but. Maybe hmm. I'll just pull that out and, and, and give it a name. I have been dying to use juxt. It, juxt is actually, it, it's super useful in a very small number of cases. And the, yeah. the one that always comes up uh, for me is you have a map or at, rather you have a sequence of maps and you want to pull out a, you know, a couple of the slots. And I find like in unit tests, it's really handy to do that where I'll say, take the sequence of maps I got back, mm-hmm. map juxt of two keywords over it, and then you actually get a vector, and because uh, vectors have equality comparison semantics in Clojure, you mm. can just say, is that thing equal to a literal vector, and, and make a really nice um, unit test for yourself.
1: Mm, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been wanting that to like, be the perfect fit for, for a while, but I haven't had this happen. It's also <laughs> yeah. funny, I'm having this podcast host moment where like, you're talking about juxt and sequences and things like that, and I'm in my normal podcast mode where I'm like, I'm going to have to explain what those things are because the Ruby audience isn't going to know. Right. But I'm not on my own podcast right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we could certainly talk. I mean, I think uh, it's always hard to know. I think we've got a, a wide variety. We, we should talk about podcasts, too. So our, yeah, I'm going to talk about our audience for a second because um, you mentioned it. You know, I, I actually it, – it's really interesting to me to to do the podcast. And uh, I genuinely enjoy talking to our guests. I mean, you, you, know, you certainly included. It's super fun. But, of course, you do have this thought that out there there are quite a few people um, listening. I was in a – a stadium, uh, attending one of my children's events the other day. And I looked around and it happened to be about the same number of people that I think the audience is. <laughs> nice. And I was like, well, if I was on a stage in the middle of this room, <laughs> you know, I would know, I would really be aware of that. But of course here it's, it's more, it's more intimate, but at the same time people are there. And so the thing is though, is like, you don't, or maybe you do, but I don't have any sense of, you know, where people are. I mean, I could guess, I, right. I mean, I imagine we have quite a few experienced closureists out there. Quite a few people who are interested in it or maybe are, have never used Clojure, but sometimes we talk about things that aren't you know, specific to the language or, or the other technologies that we're interested in. So so I don't know. You know it's, a, it's a good question. Should I be explaining what Juxta is? I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> so you had, uh, it's, it's hard to know, yeah. And, and you can, I think the, so in a group that big, there's everything, right? Right. Like everyone is in your audience effectively, every skill level. And so you kind of just have to choose. And right. then your audience will kind of self-select after that, I think. Yeah, you, that's like one of, our, one of our guiding principles here is kind of like we should do the things that we want to do that we're interested in and then the world will the people that in the world that like those things will find them. Right. You know, and so I don't, I don't think you could pick a perfect thing, but I actually really liked what Scott Hanselman mentioned on your uh, your podcast a couple episodes ago <laughs> where he tries to ask the dumb questions. Like, he just, his, like, when he thinks of himself as a host, he's like, I just try to ask really dumb questions when people are explaining things. Yep. And it turns out that a lot of people have those same dumb questions.
0: Yeah, I think he's particularly good at that.
1: Um, yeah. I just like that approach. I think that's solid.
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome. Uh, so is that something that you try to do on, on your show, or what's your approach in that spectrum?
1: I don't always go for that, but I try to be pretty honest when I don't get something. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I try to keep pressing and try to actually have people understand. Like, explain it in a way that I really actually get it, because I figure if I don't get it, other people might not either. Uh, an, an example comes to mind, actually, was with uh, when I had David Nolan on. Mm. Uh, and he was talking about something about why I think Clojure can do fast equality checking or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he explained it. And I was like, yeah, actually. And then I had him try to explain it again and again. And then like I came back to it like 20 minutes later. Was like, OK, I still didn't get that thing you said before. And... Finally got at the end, and we ended up cutting it together into sort of like one question. So it sounded like uh, we went straight from A to B, oh, uh, uh, which was nice. But it like I didn't didn't cut out the parts where I was where I didn't understand it. But we did like splice it together because I sort of actually circled back at the end of the podcast.
0: So uh, that's interesting to me because we do
1: almost no editing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I
0: I say that, but I don't want to minimize. So I handed off the duties of editing to to Russ Olson, who's um, our audio producer, and he does. Hi Russ. With Russ. Yes. Oh, like that's Russ. right. Great. So I I called him Ross on the show one time. That was Ooh. that was good. He amazingly enough, he still doesn't like put a chicken filter on me or whatever you know yeah. would make me sound even dumber. But uh, so he does. You know, he does a bunch of work. But we don't actually. We rarely will cut things together. So that's something that you. I mean, I know you have. You said you have.
1: I have a Tom. You have a Tom. Okay. I have a Tom, and Tom is the man, and Tom uh makes sure that I sound awesome, at least from the audio point of view, and. Also, that I sound awesome from a editing point of view oh that's great, so Tom is uh, just a killer, so he manages all the mics and all the stuff and all the equipment, and then does like a beautiful job editing things after the fact, uh, so often I sound even smarter than I actually am
0: cool that's awesome i mean uh, I would i mean I'm, I'm very, very happy that I've gotten help. I have to say, and I think I might have mentioned this in the show if if i didn't have um, the people helping me that are helping me, and they have you know other jobs too. <laughs> There's no right. way. There's no way we would be up at, you know, whatever this will be episode seventy-eight or I don't know what it'll be, but something like that. There's just no way we would be. Oh, yeah. to have done it.
1: Oh absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're like, in, we're at one thirty-seven. I recorded today, mm-hmm. and th- yeah, with without a support team, I, there's no way. I've never, st- I haven't stuck with anything for that many iterations for almost anything in the world. Like the, I can name maybe three things. <laughs> right. Um. So without people kind of being like, we got to record another one this week. Oh yeah, right, All right, yep. fine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We. Uh. So I, when I started the show. You know, I, I almost jokingly numbered the first episode zero, zero, 001. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, now here we are, and it looks like I might actually get to use that third digit for something one of these days before too long. Yeah, totally. So I wanted to ask you, so I have listened to your show. I don't listen to it religiously. It's just I don't I don't plow through the podcast fast enough to keep up with everything I'm subscribed to. The show is substantially similar to ours, I think, and I and I mean that. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't. How can I say this without sounding without sounding like I'm bragging, but I th- I like the same things about your show that I try to do on mine, many of mm, them. Cool. And one of the things that I, and, and this is where I haven't listened enough to get a good sense, is that I try to get a kind of a variety. I mean, I mean, so the, one of the couple of the obvious outliers were for us when we talked to Lynn about hiking the John Muir Trail, mm-hmm. and when we talked to Joey Holloway about uh, serious chronic depression. Do you, are there any kind of shows that you look back, first of all, do you try to strive for the same sort of, Or do you have like a a set of categories that you have in your mind for types of shows? And are there any that kind of stand out in your mind that have been outliers that you're especially proud of?
1: Sort of. So it's interesting. The show, if you go back to episode one of the show, we talked, I talked to our CTO, Joe Ferris, about polymorphism versus conditionals Hmm. and talked about, I think we ended up talking about Law of Demeter or two in there somewhere Hmm. and the show started off very technical, but sort of over time morphed into whatever ben has been interested in recently (laughs) right yeah um so the show i recorded today was all about haskell um Mm -hmm. because that's what i've been getting into recently and it sort of gets back to that same theme that i mentioned earlier which is like we make things that we're into and then hopefully some people are into them too and so it's it's sort of gone so somewhere after starting the show it went from technical into i started managing upcase which is like an online school for Ruby developers, like intermediate right. to advanced Ruby developers that want to get more awesome. Uh, and so, because suddenly I was writing less code and running and more run, running a business, uh, I started interviewing a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of like developers turn entrepreneurs and like developers turn development managers and VPs of things and whatnot. So it, the show has kind of loosely followed my career arc slash interests at the time, and uh, it hasn't worked for everyone. Like some people have specifically been like, I I liked the technical content, I missed that. And so we actually started another show called the bike uh, the bike shed. Uh, which is more strictly about the technical stuff. So it, it, it hasn't worked for everyone, but I think it we have a core audience that has followed along through it and seems to really enjoy it. So we keep doing it.
0: Well, I don't think you're the only one whose interests evolve over time. I mean, you know, it's the, it might even it might even be the rare person who, you know, locks on to one thing and so I think uh to the extent that you have a show that sort of moves uh from one thing to another, I think that's that's helpful to people. It's either, either that or you you know purposely introduce variety which i i think it might be fair to say that's the tack that we've taken mm-hmm. um i i if i think back the show probably hasn't isn't substantially different from one from you know 4 years ago whatever it's been 3 years 4 okay, i've forgotten already anyway mm-hmm. 3 years ago i guess but um but but do we do i guess i at least in my mind have some have
1: some uh, level of variety in there so Um, Anyway, enough about me. So, if people haven't listened to the show, you asked about highlights or outliers. Um, I'm going to turn that a little bit. If you if you're going to go listen to, if you want to grab an episode or two just to get a sense of it, um, episode 81 uh, was with Seth Godin, Mm -hmm. an agent for change. It was called. I really like that one a lot. And also, uh, yeah, Chad Fowler's episode. Where was that? That's episode 44. The title was "I Feel the Opposite of Burnt Out," which is like a really wonderful message. Cool. So grab grab those if you if you want to give it a taste and see if it's for you. Have you ever been intimidated by a guest? That's a good question. Not really. Like, I, I was, uh, as you were talking about that stadium metaphor, how you realized, like, you know, your audience was the size of the number of people in there. And if you <laughs> had been on a stage, it would have been intense. Right. I don't feel a sense of pressure when I'm on a podcast for whatever mm-hmm. reason, I guess because I'm talking to one person. I, I, I interviewed um, David Heinemeyer Hansen, creator mm-hmm. of Rails, uh, and I feel like the first couple minutes of that were, like, pretty lame and cheesy. Uh, because I think I was a little bit on edge more than usual. Sure. But other than that, I feel like I'm I'm mostly pretty comfortable with the people that they're coming on. I feel pretty relaxed.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I think uh, I think your style is very relaxed, and that's really pleasant to listen to. It's relaxed without being boring at all. It's quite the opposite. Um, so, mm. you know, I mean, Great. for what it's worth, keep it
1: up. Cool,
0: thanks. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Closure Conch. This was your first, I believe. Is that right?
1: Uh, yes, okay. it was.
0: So just I'll just open it up and say well, what was kind of your your path there your experience of it like what how did it how did it come together and go for you
1: so I had been interested in closure for a while I did this uh this weird thing that I do with a friend of mine called uh, named Chris Hunt we call it codecation so codecation is uh, Chris and I will go travel to a place and spend part of our time writing code and part of our time being tourists and so we took a trip to uh, Costa Rica and actually the, the original plan was I, I tweeted saying like I can't believe I've never read SICP the structure and interpretation mm-hmm. of computer programs just great book or like I've never like read the whole thing done the exercises I've read pieces of it and he responded like I had to Google what that was and I was like let's just get a cabin in the woods and not come out until we read SICP mm-hmm. and he's like I would do that and so cabin in the woods and SICP eventually turned out to be a villa in Costa Rica uh, writing closure script really what the, what the final incarnation uh, in, carnation turned into so yeah he and i went to costa rica and uh during the day in we were up in the rainforest and during the day it's like basically way too hot to go do anything Mm -hmm. way too humid Mm -hmm. Um, but we had this awesome porch that was shaded uh, with like monkeys like literally monkeys like like jumping on the roof and, and moving by in trees and so we would write uh closure scripts during the hot hours and then go out when it was cool enough to actually be humans in the sun
0: that oh. is super
1: cool yeah so it was super fun so we called it closure rica at the end of it and like we wrote some we wrote like game of life <laughs> like we, we had no we had no uh closure experience before this or very little so, like we wrote like game of life and we wrote like a maze generator and solver and all this stuff is online it's all open source if you want to go look at our like very new closure stuff and uh so i had gotten but i really enjoyed the experience i, I really liked the closure script and so i was have been sort of interested in it ever since and so I don't, I've been paid a little bit of money to write a little bit of closure, but mostly haven't done it professionally. And so uh, it's remained sort of a, a somewhat more passive interest. And so I was like, uh, uh, the reason I actually went to the conj was because I took a sabbatical recently. Uh, so in the middle of my sabbatical was the conge. And I was like, hey, I should go check that out while I'm, while I'm free. And so I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, how was it for you? Uh, it was interesting. How was it for me? It was great meeting you. That was a definite highlight. Um, oh, and, wow. That's yeah. super nice. So I was glad to meet you too. at the Yeah. Time. And in particular, because it sort of cemented this lesson that I've been relearning over and over for my life, which is if you ask people for things, you're more likely to get the thing you want. Mm-hmm. And if you ask for exactly what you want, you're more likely to get exactly what you want. And so even though you and I didn't really have much of a relationship, I think we had emailed like like a little bit once or twice. Yep but had never met in person, had, had never really had a conversation. But within, like, two or three minutes, I was like, so, like, what if I came to your house one time and we paired on some closure? You were like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let me just, like, let's make this happen somehow. And the reality is, like, it turns out that actually most people are really nice people and are willing to help out and, like, do friendly things. And it's surprising what you will get a yes to if you just ask for it outright.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I agree with you that it, that it is the sort of thing that seems... I don't know, if maybe counterintuitive is the right word because your intuition in this case uh, is outweighing your reason. Because it's actually, your, like, given that you yourself would mm-hmm. say yes to a similar request, mm-hmm. it's reasonable to expect that other people would as well. Sure. But your intuition says otherwise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and if you sort of think about it, like, logically, it's like, why, why would you do that? Like, you sort of, there's not a huge motivation for you to do that except that you... Uh, you know, want pay it, to pay, pay it forward and it's fun to teach people and it's, yeah, you thought I was a nice person and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'm just, I'm pleased to have had a life where a lot of people have said yes to me for various reasons. And it's, it's often mm-hmm. the most audacious questions that I ask that have the most impact on my life. And so it was just kind of like another nice moment of that, which is like, yeah, just, just keep asking for stuff, even if it feels like maybe a little bit too much and just see what happens. And so a lot of the times it works out pretty well.
0: I think that's, really, that's mm-hmm. really good advice. So maybe we'll swing back to that towards the end sure. of the show, as people might guess. But uh, any, other, any, other, um, any other impressions or, you know, or takeaways so from the conch?
1: It, it, it solidified sort of another viewpoint that I've had for a little while, which is maybe a little bit sacrilegious or something to say. But I actually think conferences are not a great place to learn things. I think a conference talk mm. is actually, I think the average conference talk does a pretty poor job of teaching people things. It's, I think, a kind of a good there are a couple of good goals for a conference talk. One is like to give you enough information that you're going to go learn about it later to get you excited about a topic. And the very very best ones teach you things. And so I felt like I got some good exposure to some ideas and got a couple like had a couple pointers of things I wanted to go check out later. But as usual, the most value I got out of a, the conference was the interpersonal uh, interactions that I had. Talking to you, talking to other people, getting a sense for what people like liked and didn't like and wh- wh- what when they were <laughs> using closure for and all that. But I remain, like, a little bit uh, bearish, I guess, on conference talks in general as a learning format.
0: Yeah, it, so Chaz Emmerich was on the show quite a while back, and he – I forget if, if it was a conversation we had outside the show or on the show, unlike you, <laughs> who apparently is able to remember every show you've done by number. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was looking him up. I was Oh,
0: okay. Well, still. Um. Anyway, um. I don't remember whether we were talking about the show or not, but his you know, his position was, I'm going to go to a conference, and I'm not going to attend any of the talks. yes and i think uh the more i've gone to conferences and 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 i now limit myself to conferences that in my opinion are uh, are very very high quality i mean i go to strange loop i go to the closure Conj, uh, a couple others and um you know these are really good conferences with you know uh way above industry average percentage of good talks mm-hmm. i mean a typical conference in industry based on my experience in other technologies is if you go to a show and 25% of the talks are good that's actually that's actually not bad like that oh, conference totally. was I would a call success. that really good yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah i mean compared to average i would say yes that's right. A
0: high right so then you go to places like the the conj well again i mean you know toot toot right but you know go to like strange loop or whatever and um you know it's much better than that right percentage wise in terms of just just even just like how good people are at telling a story or whatever but at the mm-hmm. same time if I think you're right. If you, are, if you go and you're in the room with your butt on the seat in every single session, mm-hmm. um, you are not taking advantage of the conference to the fullest extent you could.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and here's, here's partly how I know this is like the talks are not super great at this, is that I can watch most talks at 2x. Right. <laughs> and so if I have to watch it at 1x, we're only being half as efficient as we can. Yeah. And the only reason I watch it at 2 is because YouTube won't let me take it higher. Right, <laughs> You know, so like and like there are a handful of speakers that I can't do that. And those are actually my favorite speakers mm. uh, like Simon Payton Jones moves too fast for me to talk to watch his talks at 2x. And like that's that's what I want. Yeah. And so like it's just I think talks are great for telling stories. Russ has uh, Russ Olson mentioned earlier has an amazing talk to the moon, which mm. everyone should go check out, which is a story. And I think that's a perfect format for talks like stories are fascinating to watch in person. Like we're totally wired for stories. People humans love stories. And so, like, Mm -hmm. a talk is a perfect fit for that. But there are a lot of talks that I see that are basically like, if you had written a blog post, I could read this faster and would probably retain it more. Right. You know, they don't, they don't, people, I feel like that's the most common error is people don't, well, the most common error is being boring in general, I would say. That's the biggest thing that most people screw up when they're doing a talk. But beyond that, the next biggest thing is that they don't take advantage of the things that doing something live gives you, which is a chance to excite people, a chance to do weird things, a chance to freak people out, a chance to get audience participation. Like they, they, it's like you basically just re, like reading your your slides or reading your notes. And, and there's no reason that this has to have happened with me sitting here and you standing there. Yep. So but yeah, I'm, totally I'm a bit of a conference burnout in a way. Like I went nuts on the conference circuits, uh, the Ruby conference circuit like uh, two years ago. And so if I sound a little bit jaded, it's because I, I was just I was going to probably too many conferences, more than more than any man should see in terms of conference talks. I may have crossed that line.
0: Yeah. That, and that's a great point is that, you know, I assume you've presented at some of these conferences as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly. Right.
0: Yeah, and so gosh. and so I think that's a good good thing to point out to people is, you know, let's say that you haven't been to um, a conference before or, or you haven't been to a really good conference before. Mm-hmm. Um, you're listening to two people speak who have been to quite a few and are probably a little, I at least I won't speak for you, but I will describe myself as a little bit snobby when it comes to... Um, in,
1: oh, yeah. I'm incredibly, incredibly snobby, for so, sure. I have very high standards for talks.
0: Yeah. So, you so, know, if you're headed to closure West or, or whatever, go ahead and go to the talks. They, you know, a lot of them are very, very good. It's <laughs> totally and, and, oh, cool.
1: Totally. Yeah. And and I've walked out of talks and been like, wow, that was awful. And I'll hear someone right next to me be like, that was a really great yeah, talk. That's right. So like clearly, like uh, the opinions vary dramatically. That's right. So that's right. Don't listen to these two two uh, curmudgeons. That's right. Exactly. Go go form your own opinion. Good. That's to- I couldn't have said it better. <sighs> so
0: um, what are you working on these days? Are you doing uh, upcase exclusively? Like, is that your job now, or what are you? Up-
1: yeah, Upcase is my job. So I just got back from sabbatical, uh, as I mentioned. <laughs> uh, so there were some interesting things that happened in that I can talk about. Yeah, yeah, uh, let's talk about that. We, I don't, it can be
0: before or after Upcase. I'm curious to hear about it,
1: though. Okay, let me just, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit then. Um, so I, I Thoughtbot is a great company to work for for many reasons. But one of the best is that there's just a ton of flexibility. Um, and like when it comes to sort of work-life balance day, it's not just one of those things that, that everyone talks about. It's something that gets followed up on mm. and like, the the they put their money where the mouth their their money where their mouth is I guess, <laughs> uh, and uh, so basically I went to my boss uh, Chad who's the CEO and said hey um, I'm feeling a little bit a bur- little bit burnt out I was thinking of taking some extended time off and in my head was expecting him to say sure you know take a little bit of unpaid leave and we'll see you when you get back and his response was uh, literally is there some way we can keep you on the payroll while you're gone yeah and I was like. <laughs> well I mean like yes I suppose <laughs> and I was like but the thing is like I don't I mean being on the payroll sounds nice but like I don't want to feel obligated to work because sure. part of the goal of this is that I, I, I can sort of do whatever I want and he was like well what if after you know like like you just sort of keep notes on if if you do things that you think benefit a thought bot you just write them down and then we'll pay for it, you for them afterwards and I was like okay and he's like and we can also cover your travel expenses while you're doing this wow yeah um, so that was my d- deal, which is kind of ridiculous, um, and I'm I'm fully aware it's ridiculous, um, but awesome. And but sort of his his the thing he said, uh, which I really do believe he believes, is that he's like we want Thoughtbot to be a place where people can work for a long time, and so we need to have a mechanism where people that are feeling like they need a break can take a break, and so this is, might be what it looks like.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good idea. I mean, um, you know, consulting for most people, um, is a burnout activity. I mean, I was, I, I've, I think I'm a little weird. I've been a consultant for uh, 15 years now mm-hmm. and you know, I, I have known a lot of consultants and most of them last about five years before they go work for somebody. Um, sure. you know, uh, so I think that's really wise to say there has to be a way to, cause it's, ex- I mean, so, you know, it's expensive to get people in right. if you have to replace somebody. And then if you get somebody good, Y- you know, <laughs> right for for
1: good people, it's not even a question of expense. Right. You can't buy good people. Right. In, like when you lose a good person. That's right. Um, and now I, I will just to clarify, like the, the consulting at Thoughtbot, I think is unlike consulting at most places, where like sustainable pace is very important to us, mm-hmm. and we, it's built in very much to the culture. I mean, people are working forty-hour weeks for real, um, not like you know forty, but it's actually sixty. Right. Um, and in fact, it's forty-hour weeks, but we work four days on client work, and then our fifth day is an investment day. Mm-hmm. Um so it wasn't so much that I was burnt out because I've been I was like being you know driven so hard it was just kind of it was actually more like I have this timer that goes off in my head like every 18 months or so and it it <laughs> makes me want to re like shake up my life basically
0: That's so funny you say 18 months that is almost exactly the same time that I have established historically Um for me it's not about changing my entire life for me it's it's more um I like to be on a project for a minimum of 6 months Mm-hmm. Um, I, f- I feel that for the type of work that I like to do uh, under six months and I haven't really gotten my arms around the way that organization operates or the problem they're trying to solve or whatever mm-hmm. um, but after 18 months or so usually not always but usually I'm like okay I- I've-, I've gotten on top of this I've kind of reached maximum velocity and I'm no longer accelerating um, it might be interesting to go try something else and learn, and learn new things over there
1: Yeah. And I like that you said accelerating because I think of it as leaving the steep part of the learning curve. Mm. Like that's what I'm addicted to. Like when I'm still learning a lot every day. Yeah. And as that sort of tapers off, I get less and less interested. Right. And so historically, I've left jobs roughly every 24 months because I get bored at like month 18 and then like try to like make something happen and it doesn't work. Like they won't let me do other stuff basically. And so I bail. Um, But at ThoughtBot, uh, I've had a, a couple of these 18 month things happen where I started off as a consultant and I did that for about 18 months. And then I switched into running Upcase. Um, and so I did that for about 18 months and that was right around when I was like, I started to feel a little bit like feel that, that alarm going off again. And that's when I pitched the sabbatical and and got to go do that.
0: Hmm. So, uh, what did you, how did you, how long was your sabbatical and what did you do during it?
1: Yeah, it was about three and a half months. Um, I did, uh, I I have my, I have notes on what I did in my sabbatical. I should totally pull this up. Um, But uh, it started off with kind of just some travel. Uh, I went and visited, uh, did a lot of domestic travel. uh, As I might have intimated a little bit or might have indicated, I'm a little bit burnt out on international travel. Mm. And so I was like, I'm just going to stick around this country and go see people I like. Um, But so I went to, um, but while I was doing this, I was kind of doing things that were like pseudo work, but they were like the parts of work I enjoyed. So I went to New York, uh, and I have a friend that works at genius.com out there. Um, I interviewed one of their founders for the podcast and hung out with their dev team for a day really enjoyed it. Um, I gave a couple talks while I was uh, traveling around I spoke at like a Portland Ruby group and the future of web apps in Boston and, and things like that. Um, but I would say the highlight of the whole thing was the last month, uh, January, I went and taught at a place, uh, a place called the touring school of software and design, which is in Denver. Um, sorry, they, is that, is
0: that touring as an Alan Turing or touring exactly. as okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Alan
1: Turing. T U R. You are. Yep. Um, and uh, it, which is a great thing that it's a seven month program where they teach you uh, Ruby slash Rails slash JavaScript um, and uh, I, a good friend of mine Jeff Casimir runs that program uh, and so I was like hey why don't I come down and, and like, just help out and teach for a month and he said yeah totally um, and so I went and like, rented an Airbnb in Denver and lived there and sort of joined the teaching staff and you know, did code reviews and paired with people and answered questions and just had a, a blast with it
0: so that's interesting. We've actually talked on the show a couple times before about these sort of I, – I assume this is one of these you can start as – am I right? Is it one of those you can start as a
1: non-coder and they take you all the way to the point where you can be a professional or is it some other aim? That's the, that's the rough gist. I, 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 think, I think a lot of their students have some previous programming experience, not a lot, like not professional level. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do have some people that are coming in totally new though, yeah.
0: So that must be really interesting. And, and I, you were seeing them at what point during their uh,
1: curriculum? actually all points so they run cohorts gotcha um, so people were at different phases of of this program
0: what uh, so i mean i'm all, i'm i guess i'm maybe most interested in the the absolute beginners the people that are you know right hmm. at the right at the beginning was there any did you have any anything that surprised you or, or particularly pleasant light bulbs that went off or anything yes. that struck you
1: totally the biggest one was that <laughs> uh, beginners want to write functional code instead of oh yeah isn't
0: that interesting
1: yep I found that totally fascinating. And I found that like, the ha- it was the hardest thing for beginners to grasp were the, o- the parts of Ruby that were OO. Like, what they really wanted to do was to write um, class methods that took stuff and returned stuff mm-hmm. and chained a bunch of them together. Yep. And as soon as we we're like, no, 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 you got to separate this into objects and then instances. And this is, no, the difference, there's a difference between the class definition over here and an instance of that class. And, like, once we started getting to that, people got so confused, and they really just wanted to write functional code. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was, I had this really interesting moment where I've been using Ruby, I mean, for, like, 12 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've forgotten the parts that are weird and confusing, uh, which is so wonderful to see through a beginner's eyes. But I I started to think, like, I think this is actually a really terrible language to learn as your first language. (laughs) It's, it's, yeah, well, I... I, From, from From a pedagogical standpoint. Right, right, right. It's a great language to go get a job in. like It's a great first language if you want to go get hired, which every one of these students does. Sure. And so I totally get why they picked it. But from a purely like, hey, you should learn to program, and you pick Ruby as your first language, it's just like not a good, it's bad. I just say it's bad, straight up bad.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me. I've, I've, um, I remember when I was cu- first coming up as a programmer, OO was really only beginning to catch on in the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, kind, of, kind of where we're, a little bit kind of like where we're at with functional right now. And I am not ashamed to admit, I did not get it for a long time. Like, it confused the heck out of me for quite a while.
1: I mean, I still find modeling things is very hard. And, like, I run Upcase, which is, you know, we have primarily intermediate and advanced people. And we still, there's still tons of questions, like, on our forum and whatnot um, about modeling things. Like, how do you, like, okay, I have this situation in the real world. How do I model this? and like i i still i think it's one of the fundamental struggles of oo is like where like where do you draw the class boundaries what goes where so now i'm curious
0: have you have you gotten to a point with your closure where you've had to start to answer some of the same questions and if so have how have you addressed that question
1: i mean i haven't done i haven't written huge systems in closure to the point where like it becomes that where that's a huge question i guess um but i feel i mean Maybe this is my ignorance, but I feel like closure helps you kind of dodge this a little bit. Like, you have to decide what functions go in a namespace, but there's not, you're not fundamentally making classes. You're not making, like, these, like, analogs to real-world objects. Right. Would you agree with that? No, I
0: agree with that, yep. Okay. I mean, you yeah. still have some of the same questions, because you have to model information in the same way you... But, but I think that the, the data literals are a better fit for modeling information than, than objects are.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you, with, with the da- I mean, you have to decide what data goes where, but not... What data goes with what behavior at the same time yes right?
0: and and what the API for each individual piece of it is exactly yeah. right,
1: exactly um so actually funny enough, uh, one of my proposals uh, was so there's at at the touring school, there are four modules, which are basically correspond to like the four phases of the program, uh, and my pitch was mostly serious was to teach closure in the first module instead hmm. of Ruby, and then switch them and module two and see what happens. Because I think closure is actually closure and fundamental or functional programming is a fundamentally simpler idea than OO. I think I, it's I think it's easier to understand.
0: I, I've talked to people who have learned functional first and then learned OO, mm-hmm. and uh, and they seemed you know it's a small sample set you know I'm talking about two or three people I've talked to, right? But they seem to have much less trouble acquiring the OO concepts than the people that started out in OO do have acquiring the functional concepts.
1: Yeah, I believe it. So. I was talking uh, to a Thoughtbotter here, who is a big Haskeller, and he says he, his experience with people that learn Haskell first is that they don't have very much problem with it. It, it feels great to them; they like it. But if they learn it after, like another language, it, then then it suddenly is confusing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the whole unfamiliarity aspect, right? I mean, this is the as as people who are who enjoy Lisps, you know, we we see this all the time where totally people just dismiss it because of syntax, because it's not familiar.
1: God, that drives me crazy. I can't believe how common that is. Actually, and you know what? So it's interesting because I'm I'm learning Haskell right now, and Haskell has its own syntax quirks. You could say like it 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 tends towards punctuation for certain operators, like you know like one of the operators is like a less than dollar sign greater than or a less than star greater than. And my first reaction to that is like, ugh, what is this like garbage <laughs> like embedded in this line? Looks like <laughs> Perl. Looks like line noise. Right. And I have to stop myself because I cannot stand when people. Look at closure and they're like, oh, all those parentheses. It's like, don't you, you don't understand? Like, I get that that looks foreign to you right now, but it, over time it doesn't, and there are good reasons for it, and you'll start to like it. And it's like just the worst thing to dismiss an idea on the basis of.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it happens to be one of my pet peeves as well. Only for me, it's specifically about people in the closure world making that judgment because, you know, you're standing here in the, you know, using a language that presumably you like that other people dismiss on those grounds. like You can't do the same thing to other languages. If, right. if you have an objection to the design, that is an entirely separate thing. But if it's purely about the aesthetics of the way the syntax is expressed, then I think you've got to step back and take a hard look at what you're really saying.
1: Totally. Totally agree. I think it's, that's the least interesting vector along which to criticize something. Absolutely true.
0: I'm um, so sorry. We were talking about your, your sabbatical, and you had made your way to, uh, to Colorado, and you were, you were teaching yes. there.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was great. I, I, I don't know what, much, what else to say about it other than it was wonderful. And they're looking for more guest teachers like I was. Um, so if you're interested, it's a really great group of people. Like the, the, st- the teaching staff are phenomenal. The students are all highly motivated and looking to learn and working hard. So if you have an interest in going and hanging out in Denver for a while and teaching people and you're a good teacher and you have empathy, uh, then you should get in touch with them or me and uh, go do it.
0: Cool. Uh, we will, as always, include a link to that uh, in the yeah. way people can do that in the show notes. Yeah, please do. Well, cool. So that brings us, I think, to where you're working now, which is Upcase. Now, this is, a, I assume it's a business unit of ThoughtBot.
1: Exactly, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and you said the mission is to educate intermediate to advanced Ruby developers to become even better at their craft. Is that correct? Yeah, nailed it. Okay, cool. So so what's your role there? You're like the, the head of the business?
1: Yeah, my title is managing director, which means I run the thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, my duties sort of get are, are fairly split. So some, some days I'm writing code um, and reviewing pull requests. And some days I'm writing emails for a new drip campaign. And sometimes it's, you know, reviewing the financials and looking at the churn numbers and figuring out and writing A-B tests and sort of, sort of everything. Mm-hmm. Product management is probably the best description of it. Uh, it sounds like you like it. Uh, I love it. And the thing that's great for me is that it's kind of, I think of business as the ultimate strategy game. Mm. Um, And there's a million different strategies you can employ, and there's a million different things that you can upgrade. So for instance, you can decide like, hey, the biggest problem we have right now is activation, meaning people sign up and they pay us money, but they end up not getting value from the product. So of course they cancel pretty quickly, right? So let's tackle activation. Okay, one way to tackle activation is with like a drip email campaign. So when someone signs up, the, the very first thing we send them is like a couple tips for getting value out of Upcase. And then if they haven't done any of those things a day later, we'll email them again and suggest things a slightly different way. Uh, and you know, maybe if they haven't done it in five days, we'll send an email to them and CC me and try to schedule like, a Skype call with them or something. And so you could spend easily two weeks or many weeks just sort of getting your emails right <laughs> and like a-B testing and saying, like, does this campaign actually work? Does, like, you know, when we do email people, do they, do they activate at a higher rate? And you could just spend all this time on this tiny, tiny little niche of this tiny part of the product value, which is activation. And so that fits with my personality very well. Like, I like to sort of zoom in and hyper-focus on a thing for a little bit and then move on to something else.
0: I am going to assume that, like me, then you enjoy uh, profiling and performance optimization?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, I can get down with that. Because it
0: sounds, that's the... the... But I've never been a business guy. Um, and mm-hmm. that to me, when, when you say that I'm, I'm reminded of what's the bottleneck, what are the right. strategies for, for a, how totally. do you measure that? What are the strategies for addressing it? And, you know, at some point you have to know to stop because it's no longer the bottleneck and it's more efficient to go on to something else. Yep. Exactly.
1: Yep. Well, very cool. similar.
0: What, what else should we talk about? I mean, you, I know you have a million things going on. We have to, sh- we talked a little bit about your, your podcast, which is great. People should definitely listen to it. Uh, if you, uh, Got any other other exciting adventures uh,
1: coming up that you want to tell us about? So these, I've I've touched on this a little bit, but I've I've been learning Haskell recently and Mm. really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Um, So a coworker, there's actually been sort of this interesting like Haskell movement that's been blossoming inside ThoughtBot. Okay. It's been sort of been, it's been kind of sneaking its way in, which is really interesting. Um, So a coworker of mine, uh, Pat Brisbane, wrote a book called Maybe Haskell, and it's sort of a. It's not really meant to to teach you Haskell. It's meant to introduce you to this Maybe data type.
0: I was going to say, is that a monad joke?
1: It's it, it, yeah, it is. It's a type class joke. Awesome. Exactly. All right. Um, and so like the Maybe type, the Maybe data type can represent a th- a value which may or may not be there. Um, so in Ruby, like if you have a find user method that takes an ID, it will either return you a a user or generally a nil. But in Haskell, that's kind of anathema. You would never do that. Instead, what you would return is a Maybe user, and that is. Uh, A a pair that's like two sets of information one is the user and the other is like this context which indicates is the user actually there Mm -hmm. or is there in fact nothing there and so he uses this idea this type class maybe I hope it's a type class I hope I'm saying that right to teach you some a few interesting things about Haskell and so it's not everything about Haskell it's just sort of the the basics of Haskell to the, the minimal amount of Haskell you need to understand to understand the maybe type class And then he uses that to sort of bump into interesting topics along the way, like functors and applicative and monads, which all, if if you're not familiar with those, those words all sounds very scary. Yes, yes, they do. (laughs) They sound super scary. And it's because they're math terms, right? And they sounded very scary to me too. But I'm here to tell you as someone on the other side who now sort of gets those terms that they're actually not super, super hard to understand. They're pretty reasonable. Uh, And Pat's book does actually a really nice job of, of making them feel approachable. But the reality is that they actually are just approachable and they sound way worse than they are.
0: That's cool. I, I think I've definitely got to read that one because Haskell or something like it, um, you know, something at the at the typed end of the spectrum has been on my list for a long time to learn. In the same way that everybody should learn a Lisp and everybody should learn a, you know, some kind of functional programming language or both at the same time or
1: whatever. Like, you it's know, just Craig, I'm I'm, I'm going to call you out because okay. I hear you I hear you all the time on I this know. podcast say that you've got to learn yes, this thing, yes. you got to investigate this thing, and I think you might need like some side project time or maybe a sabbatical.
0: Uh, well, you know, we have Friday time, right? And so we do okay. just like you guys. We have. Uh, we have twenty percent time that I could devote to that. It's a question of choosing to do it. The podcast sure. takes up some of my time, but you know, there's other projects that I'm churning through. But the truth is, it's it's really like I, I, it's all excuses. There's no reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I have two kids, but it's not like I have zero time in my day. You know, I play the bass. I could be doing this instead. You know, of doing that. There's lots of other things I could be doing instead. So, I, 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 I you, you totally nailed me. I am absolutely guilty of saying I should do this and then not making it a priority. That's just, mm-hmm. I guess maybe what I should say is I really want to do that. That might be the, the most, the, the yes. most honest thing I could say.
1: Yeah. And, and this actually dovetails nicely with the, the advice that you've asked me to okay. uh, recommend. Oh, should end. we, are,
0: are we going there?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, if we're ready to end, then yes, but if not, I can just, I'll, I'll come back to it.
0: Well, you know, I, I mean, I would be happy to keep talking to you a bunch more, but I can already tell like is so often the case with our guests who are so wonderful that we're gonna to have to have you back on, so there's no reason for us to exhaust all the topics. And you know, based on what you've said about your life, it's not like you're not gonna have more things to talk about mm. six months or a year from now. So, um, if there's nothing else that you absolutely think we should talk about today, then we, we could move on and uh, and wrap up and get to the advice. I admit my curiosity is a bit tickled.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, well, first of all, I just want to say like I think I, I want to I kind of what I like to hear I'd like to hear you like pick a couple things and then like commit to them. Like be like, these are my things. All right. But anyway, not now, but at some point in your life. But but here's here's the advice that that I I have. So there was a a really great blog post which I'm sure we'll link to in the show notes by someone named Mark Manson, Uh, and the title of it is the most important question of your life. And the gist is uh, the question is not what do you want out of life because it's easy to answer that with things like I want to be happy, I want to be you know have a fulfilling job, I want to learn about Haskell and the Maybe type class and whatnot. The interesting question is what suffering are you willing to endure Mm. and what pain are you willing to feel because most of the things that are worth doing and that give you know cause that life that you want are hard and so the thing you should ask yourself is like not this sort of pie in the sky what do I want like I want to become a drummer and I want to do this and that it's like what what kind of suffering are you willing to go through to get the things you want like what kind of suffering would you push yourself through and what kind of commitments are you able to keep. And those are going to determine, more than anything else, the path of your life.
0: Interesting. So this is your advice, is to, is to ponder this question
1: and use, yes. it, use it to drive your decisions. Exactly. So read this blog post and ponder this question. And, and there's, this sort of dovetails with a, a Paul Graham essay recently, where he says when he was, I think it was when he was learning programming, other people seemed, or, or maybe it was writing, seemed to hate it, but he loved it. It never felt like work to him. And so be on the lookout for things that are sort of suffering that you don't mind, Mm -hmm. suffering that you kind of like, Mm -hmm. because those are probably areas that you can become great at something and the suffering will not be so bad along the way.
0: Wow. That is super profound. I love it. That's awesome. I'm going to have to, I'm probably going to lie awake tonight thinking about that, um, for real. That'd be great. Okay, cool. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, it's been super great to talk to you. I absolutely and looking forward to seeing you at the next next conference or failing that to getting you or maybe even including that uh, to, to getting you back on the show um, at some point in the near future to hear what you've been up to. You're, you're doing interesting things. Of course, people can follow you on the podcast and I will certainly be doing that, too. But uh, it's nice to talk to you one on one, as it were, to, uh, yeah. to to interact. So likewise, it was a pleasure. Oh, God, I'm glad to hear that. We were, we, were, we were super glad you were able to do it. So we'll go ahead and close it down there. I'll thank uh, Ben one more time. I'll thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. Awesome man. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the show, listen to past episodes, and view cover art at the CogniCast's home on the web, cognitech.com slash podcast. Our guest today was Ben Ornstein on Twitter, at R00K. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau, audio production by Russ Olson. The CogniCast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. (music) Lil <music>